Hello fellow time travelers, we are now part of the Direction Point Podcast Network, a podcast network specifically devoted to Doctor Who podcasts including the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, the Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast, and Time Streams. You can find the Direction Point Network at directionpoint.org. Check out all of our sister podcasts and enjoy your travels. Hi. I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the family-friendly task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Actually, it's not family-friendly at all when we do it. (laughs) My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally family-friendly four-person discussion panel, boy that's hard to say, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And because this is being released over the Chicago TARDIS weekend in 2021, we also welcome back to the podcast not one but two special guests, because this is a very special episode in all senses of the word. The first is a longtime friend of the podcast and the only person to date I personally know who's also a character in the Doctor Who universe, Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello, hello. We also have the creator of the Direction Point Network and host of one of our sister podcasts on that network. And welcome back to the podcast, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, Larry Van Mersbergen. Hello, Larry. Hello, Tony. Great to be here. Hello, Trey. Hello, Dalton. Yes. If you like what you're hearing, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you now have to hide them from your younger kids so as not to terrify them. (laughs) Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, because who knew? Target books are not for kids. Go figure. And as 
as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Berry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, Jade Sonall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. This time we're doing a couple of Target books out of story order, though one of them is not necessarily out of publication order for reasons that we'll get into in a second. These are the two junior Doctor Who books that Terence Dix wrote. We're going to do these one at a time, since they still count as separate novelizations, and we'll do them in story order, even though they weren't published that way. That means that for the first time ever, I'm going to be giving you the background on these books before doing the fast facts on each of them. <laughs> That's just amazing. It may strike you as an odd way to do this, but these are some very odd books. So here's the background. According to the Target book by David J. Howe and the excellent website Doctor Who's Putrid Ham, these books were advertised as being aimed at five to eight-year-olds by quote-unquote popular demand. But the editor of the Target range at the time, Brenda Gardner, was quoted by Howe as saying that Terrence Sticks himself came to her with the idea of redoing some of the books for a younger audience, or at least she said she was sure that he did. Gardner already thought that Dix was aiming young when writing them for an age group of 11 to 14 year olds, when the books were certainly being read by a much older audience, and as we already know from the books we've read written by other authors in the 1980s, the books would soon reflect that more mature audience. In other words, this could well have been a cash grab on Terrence Dix's part, and there's some evidence to suggest that, and Larry told me before recording that he has even more, so I'll let him jump in once we get there. The two books adapted for this range, if you can call something that only lasted for two books a range, <laughs> were both books Dix had written already, and they were both adaptations of his own scripts. That means that any royalties from their sales would not have to be split between himself and another writer, and essentially he'd be paid twice for writing the same book, not to mention three times for writing the same story. It's also not clear there was really such a big youth audience out there for such a range, and Target seems to have known this already if the publication delays were anything to go by. Larry, you said you had other information that might shed some light on this being a cash grab as we suspect it was. I do. It's actually more of a cash grab today than it was back in the 70s because uh, when I was actively a dealer back in the 80s, we placed a regular order with our distributor, which was Lyle Stewart in New York, the exclusive distributor for Wyndham Publications, which owned Target and Allen and all that. And we specifically asked for copies of the Doctor Who Junior books to bring to the 85 TARDIS 22 convention. And there was a long pause on the phone and our agent, and I can't remember the guy's name to save my life, but the he said, I'm going to have to tell you that we cannot get those Doctor Who Junior books. And we were kind of like, well, why not? He goes, well, as of now, they no longer exist. Huh. The entire stock had been dumped. Oh, wow. And it says it was due to lackluster sales, poor marketing, poor editing, a bad idea that they hoped would go away. <laughs> Those were the exact words he used. And I remember just kind of pondering that for a minute going, oh, OK, well, this is why today you don't see these books out there. There are very few of them available for sale. In fact, they're now getting high amounts of money in both paperback and hardcover. They they did both of them. And I'm going to say I doubt that Terrence Dix came up with this. This sounds like something from marketing at Wyndham to say, we need to come out with a children's series. They're probably being pressured from somebody else, but maybe that went to Terrence Dix, who brought it up the chain and said, maybe we should try this. Also, the fact that they I think they chose the wrong stories to adapt. <laughs> And they didn't sell well yeah. at all. And they were, I don't know if they were pulled off the shelves, but remaining stock at W.H. Allen were officially dumped. Covers ripped off, the rest thrown away. And it sounds like that same lack of confidence at the end of the project actually caused problems at the beginning of it. Yes. <laughs> because publication of these series was delayed from the very start. Mm -hmm. The first book slated to be released as a junior Doctor Who title was against all possible 
impossible logic, The Brain of Morbius, a story that, as we know, was once considered so violent, it was dramatically chopped down when first released on BBC Video. Now, I actually realize as I write that 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 is incorrect. What they did was they used the omnibus edition that had gone out on BBC over one of the holidays, and it was severely chopped down for a family audience. And they thought, oh, well, why don't we just throw this on video? In fact, the director of that story even thinks that's the reason why it went on on video. It was actually released here in the States under the imprint for kids. Yep. Playhouse mm -hmm. or something? Playhouse. 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 That's there it. it is. Yeah. That's exactly it. So this is the story mm -hmm. that they decided to release for kids for yeah. ages four to eight. <laughs> Yikes. It was originally meant to be published in July of 1978, but then the launch date shifted to April of 1979, and then they added the giant robot to the schedule and made it the first book to be released, presumably to have the fourth Doctor introduced properly to, you know, those many five-year-olds who weren't alive when he came on the screen. <laughs> Yeah, this happened despite the fact that Graham Williams, the producer at this time, had trouble with how poor the Peter Edwards illustrations of Tom Baker are. And he's right, they're absolutely hideous. Giant Robot finally came out in hardback of May 1979, with the paperback edition coming out the next year. And Brandon Morbius came out in hardback of June of 1980, with the paperback edition coming out in November of that year. Needless to say, there were no more releases after that. Obviously, given Larry's evidence, <laughs> they were pulled from the shelves, perhaps, and now they are extremely rare to the point that it is very difficult to get hold of copies of a book that most of us would never crack open if we had the choice to do so. They were torched and thrown off the side of a mountain. <laughs> yes. Possibly. Yes. As well they should be, because they certainly are a Frankensteinian hodgepodge of things, aren't they? <laughs> the practice at the time was... Uh for most publishers in the 70s and early 80s because I actually contacted them to find out what their process was. Uh, the covers were ripped off and incinerated and the other books were just tossed into the rubbish because it was illegal to sell a book without a cover. And in <laughs> fact, it may still be that way, but mm -hmm. that was the case. However, some of the books got through that because my particular copy of Giant Robot is missing the title page. Oh, okay. So when I open up the book, there is no title page. It goes straight to Table of Contents, which tells me Possibly whoever was ripping them out didn't quite get the cover, but they got the title page because this is not a library book. There's no stamps or anything in it. And so it's passed through many hands over the years, but the title page is missing. I noticed that it was missing that because I went looking for the illustrator and realized I didn't have that info. Actually, just to just kind of go through that real quick, from the collector's view, The Brain of Morbius is actually a little easier to find in paperback and hardcover. Apparently, some of those survived and sold a little bit, but not very much. You can actually find copies of Brain of Morbius in hardcover currently online for about $248 and the paperback for roughly $15 to $20, depending on its condition. The Giant Robot's a little bit harder to find. The hardcover edition of Giant Robot in any condition will start at about $500 on up. <laughs> paperback probably 30 to 40. Mother Superior because I can think of twice twice <laughs> I could have bought the damn thing you know like oh I remember yeah. back in the days of B. Dalton and Walden books I was like 8, 9, 10 years old whatever and so maybe just a little bit too old for the junior Doctor Who book but I, I have a distinct memory it was the Brain of Morbius I just remember thinking the illustrations were awful and <laughs> that it was stupid I already had the regular book so I was like, why would anyone buy this? And I put it back on the shelf. And then I saw them at a half price books in the late 90s at some point. Mm -hmm. And again, I was like, yeah, I don't know why anyone would want this. And I wasn't even thinking like a collector. So yes. Oh my gosh. That's so frustrating to hear. <laughs> I hear that all the time. And, and, and sadly, yeah, the Brain of Morbius paperback was actually distributed to the United States prior to Lyle Stewart's acquisition of the rights to distribute, which was why Walden Books and some Crocs and Bertanos had the book. You know, if, it, if they were pulled off the shelf, America wasn't included in that, but they stopped distribution to, to North America and Canada in late 1984. That's when I was told they couldn't even get them because the warehouse in London had basically gotten rid of all of them and tried to basically pretend they never happened. Well, 
And so that's an interesting story. Of course, my, my paperbacks currently are on loan to the Target Book Club podcast. Initially, when I sent them to Tony, we were trying to scan those, but those proved more difficult, so I scanned the hardbacks instead. They're a little bit easier to lay flat. But the paperback versions are out there. You won't find very many, but that's why the price tag on Giant Robot is a little bit more, uh, more steep because there are not very many of those out there. In fact, I have not seen a hardcover edition of the Giant Robot in a good five years, and I've had this one for 20. Well, I'd say we're definitely into the first impressions part of things. <laughs> yes. So, um, Dalton, you're the only one we haven't heard. For, well, actually, I haven't given my first impression either yet. But, Dalton, what was your first impression when you knew we were going to do this to you? Well, just initially, when we were talking about these books, I, I hadn't even seen the back cover. You hadn't even sent them because we, we've kind of talked about these for months as being kind of a special episode. And I was really kind of expecting books for kids that would be read to them as like a bedtime story you know totally the type of thing that I would have been into having been read to me so once I actually saw them yeah the the illustrations the covers aren't so bad the insides are a little unusual <laughs> um, but yeah this is this is totally like bringing me back to childhood and and my mom like sitting me down and trying to calm me down to go to bed so there there is like a little bit of a nostalgia aspect to it even though they're not the best books in the world I think if I was a kid I would be really excited to read these or have them read to me Maybe I was just too old a kid at the time I first encountered one. I recall being in my late teens when I found a copy of Giant Robot at the local library and checked it out and thought, oh, uh, well, I don't think I've read the original of this, so why don't I go ahead and do this? And hated every second of it. <laughs> And never in my life thought, oh, maybe I should steal this from the library so that I'll be able to pay for my retirement one day. But so no. You're, you're responsible for the ex-library copies. <laughs> yes, probably so. I'm sure somebody was. Somebody has to be. Somebody oh, took yeah. it upon themselves to do us all great service. Great service such as it was. As far as how successfully these books actually adapt the stories for a younger audience, well, that's part of the reason we're doing them separately. So we're going to start with the giant robot and i'm going to give you the fast facts so without further ado here are some fast facts junior doctor who and the giant robot adapted by terrence Dix from a script that aired from 12 28 74 to 1 18 75 published by target in may of 1979 as of this recording in november 2021 this title is currently out of print 94 pages it also goes without saying that neither of these books have an audiobook version no as well they shouldn't let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover of giant robot shall we larry do you have that available in front of I you i do okay let's have you do that one it stalks through the night huge terrifying powerful smashing everything that stands in its path the giant robot is controlled by evil scientists who want to rule the world Meanwhile, the doctor is still recovering from his latest change of body. Can he regain his strength in time to save the world from the giant robot? And due to popular demand, Terrence Dix has rewritten this Doctor Who story, especially for five to eight-year-olds. Popular, popular demand. demand. Oh my God, Tony, we're like, that's the key popular part. Popular demand, yes. Well, there's nothing like marketing copy on the book. It's like, wow, this is this is popular demand. I got to buy this. Yes. And it didn't work. Sadly, it didn't work. Before, before 2020, <laughs> the big lie was that these books were written because of popular demand, because I refuse to believe that there was a group of five to eight-year-olds clamoring, especially for this book let's talk about this one first shall we because spoiler alert i think this is probably the more pared down of the two it is oh yeah 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 because i did comparisons this is what i do for you all at home listeners i looked at the original target versions of both of these books and cross-checked them against the juniors and oh my god holes does not describe it it is just chock full so mm -hmm. <laughs> let's talk about what y'all thought about this since for some of you it's going to be your first time reading this and for some not 
I don't know, because we were talking about First Impressions and Dot was going to this nostalgic thing. And all I have to say is this adaptation really has early 80s scholastic book fair energy about it. Oh, 100%. Oh, yes, right? yes. <laughs> Even down to the illustration style, as they are, it's the sort of thing that, you know, when the book orders would come and, you know, I don't even know if the British audiences even know what these things are. But this, they had all these really weird adaptations. That same sort of style animation that you would see like on ABC, Saturday morning cartoons, not the actual cartoons themselves, but like the little blurbs in between them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's that same sort of like very crude, late 70s, early 80s animation style. And so this had been successful. This would have been like a whole book order thing. That was my first impression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these would have been on the tables at the book fairs that they used to have in elementary school. Mm -hmm. If I'd still been in elementary school when this was going on. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it definitely has that. And you would think that uh, it's, it's definitely the sort of property that has lent itself since to children's books. Because we do have, well, in fact, we've done them on the show. We've done the choose-your-own-adventure versions of Doctor Who that were released in the last decade. And those are very much for a younger audience. <laughs> and we've seen other children's books produced ever since the revival began. But for some reason, these didn't take. And this one in particular has issues. So many issues. Oh, my God. Where do we start with this one? Well, well, I, I'll just jump in. If a five-year-old tried to read this, I'd be trying to answer so many questions because he uses words that a five-year-old wouldn't understand, for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just, looking, just looking at one part where he says, the radio in the Land Rover. I'm like, the radio in the car. <laughs> yeah. <You> know, <laughs> I've been a K-12 teacher for 25 years. I'm not a reading specialist by any stretch, but I've read to kindergarten classes as part of my job in my life. And I thought there's no way I could read this to a class. I'd have parents calling for my, you know, execution. And right. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> thank you, Larry, because yeah. like I was going to bring in the English teacher perspective as sure. well. And I did get my master's in reading education. Oh, I defer to you, sir. <laughs> and so, well, yes. no, but like it's, I mean, I'm not trying to be... But obviously this spoke to me because there are so many issues about why an appropriate reading level. And again, just the concept of the five-year-old through eighth grade reading level, that is such a leap in reading development. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, are there eight-year-olds who are probably reading at the five-year-old level? Yes. I mean, I probably have high school students who would struggle through it, yeah. quite frankly. Yes. Yeah. But it's still, it's the reading level doesn't match the subject content. And the way it sounds like, it sounds like he rewrote it. And it sounds like he went through his original and just changed things. And one of my comments was going to be kind of like what Larry is saying. Um, I kept writing, kids need context. Kids need context. Yes. Yes. And they just assume they know what's going on with like the nuclear destructor codes. And I think with Giant Robot in particular... If you're going to readapt it, that subplot almost needs to be removed because all of that happened is offstage. It's very theoretical, the threat mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. of releasing the nuclear codes. I'm very much a believer in Piaget's theories of abstract thinking development. And kids that age have to see, even if they're reading, it has to be an image that's in front of them. So they'd probably enjoy the robot stomping around and them fighting things and all. But why Hilda Winters and Jellico are even doing this, the whole motivation... I mean, even the Scientific Reform Society, their whole angle, that, that's, that's very political, that's very mature. And I think even eight-year-olds would need to have it explained a lot more. I was wondering why this Doctor Who story, not a more simplistic one, like maybe Terror of the Zygons. Oh, because Terrence Dix wrote both of them, and then they're his original stories. Yeah, I, you know, just to jump back real quick, my thought was, why didn't they do a first Doctor story like the French Revolution or the Crusaders or something that was more historical that, that has been told in kids speak and could be told in a better way, even if they were to include the current Doctor on the cover, which White Lion did way back in the day they could do that as opposed to a story that you know if they saw it on tv it'd be absolutely frightening to a five-year-old but i was even thinking more simplistic like what's a brigadier mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> you know mm -hmm. things like that because that comes up it's like you know we all know who the brigadier is we've read all the books we've seen the stories but a five-year-old kid is looking at that word like what's a brigadier mm -hmm. yep i would have 
change that to general or something simpler or something more um, down to kids level because they wouldn't know what that is well even talking about the doctor's regeneration you need some of the context there and trey points out the context is gone because that's one of the first cuts Dix makes all of the backstory about planet of the spiders and the doctor regenerating and all of that that was at the beginning of the original novelization is completely gone here would tom baker have still been the doctor when these were being published oh yeah yeah okay. absolutely towards the end so that's the only thing i can think of is their reasoning is that kids that these are aimed at may be watching the show so mm-hmm. having him be the doctor wouldn't confuse them as much as you know if you throw in hartnell well even even if they didn't throw in hartnell uh, there was a company called white lion that published the daleks the crusaders and the zarbi and they put tom baker's picture on the cover yeah. <laughs> because they came out during the 70s yeah. so they could have just ignored the whoever generation of the doctor was and chose a story of maybe historical importance yeah. and made it easier for children to understand versus a, a giant robot in a brain in a jar yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is what Sidney Newman didn't want anyway. But that's... <laughs> exactly. Well, they were also working through the just sheer volume of Tom Baker's stories they had at this point to adapt. Because if you look at the publication history for Target between the year that Tom Baker started and 1980, there are very few books from the earlier eras being published by that point, except for the Pertwee ones that hadn't been done yet. So that may be a reason why they didn't do it. Now, by that same logic, they could have done a Pertwee story, perhaps. But yeah... They weren't ever going to do that so long as they had Tom Baker stories to do and as long as they had Tom Baker stories that were written by Terrence Dix. You, you know we're lucky that we didn't get one done based on Horror Fang Rock. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that would have been the next one. Luckily, they stopped him just in time. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. I think Fang Rock would have actually worked because it's a very simple story it has simple stereotypical characters i mean the whole premise of should this whole project even be done i think is ludicrous but i think fang rock is a much simpler story than giant robot or brain of morbius and i think actually if there was of a terran sticks one that could have worked i think that one could have worked oh i don't mean in terms of not working trey i mean in terms of we would have to have read it well yeah there's that but i I'm like <laughs> yes but I'm, i guess like i'm just thinking of if you're going to do something like this the rationale for which ones they did and why just they they really weren't considering the readers they really weren't no and that's bad yeah and you're absolutely right that it looks like terrence sticks just went through with a meat cleaver essentially and took it to his own prose because the chapter titles are the same i think that's what yeah they're exactly the same same thing with uh brain yeah so it feels like a big rewrite yeah Mm -hmm. that's precisely what's going on and it's not a particularly good rewrite either as a matter of fact it looks like dix may have gotten some notes when he did brain morbius about what to keep chopping on because this is much more bare bones than the other book even though the other book i think is shorter yeah only just yeah morbius is like 10 pages shorter yeah i don't know what that's about to be honest this feels in some ways both longer and shorter than uh, morbius did anything that strikes you from this version apart from well we might as well get there because it's the elephant in the room the illustrations oh <sighs> they, they couldn't get a better illustrator for some reason. I wish I knew more about that, but the, the illustrations are absolutely, I don't know. I, I, I want to go back to a few podcasts ago. I thought the Doctor and the Enterprise images were better. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not sure I'd go that far. I, but, I think they're oh. slightly better. <laughs> Oh, I just started enjoying them because oh, I, I have to make it naughty, but it seems like the giant robot has really been enjoying his disintegrant gun and when it's like kind of spewing all over everything. But my favorite illustration is Sarah Jane squatting and looking at the puddle. Yes. yes. And, yes. Then, and then her face has a sort of like Goldie Hawn laughing sort of style where she's like <laughs> turning directly looking at you like, oh. What is it? It's the punchline, like she made a piddle, you know? And she looks like a baboon there. It's like her water broke or something. And she was like, how did this come from? Yeah. <laughs> it's the same exact thing where there's a picture of Sergeant Benton showing her something and she looks like he's showing her something he shouldn't be showing her. Because <laughs> <laughs> the look on her face is like, 
Oh. oh. It's growing, bigger deer. It's, it's, it's yeah. growing. <laughs> it's growing. Oh, dear. We just lost our family friendly. Uh, well, we never had it. We never had it. Larry. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Tony knows what he's getting into when he invites me on these things. Yeah, That's true. I do. That's sadly. true. A lot of the illustrations are like overly complicated for what they're trying to show. Instead of just being a simplistic drawing of the character or whatever, the illustrator's like really trying to give us the scenery behind them and doing a lot of cross hatching and shading that is just becomes very muddy, especially for the giant robot. We'll get to the brain of Morbius, but even between the two, there's like a stylistic difference that they both are just very busy and very heavy for kids' drawings. Mm -hmm. Something that is supposed to be a, for a child, which should be more simplistic, more simpler shapes. Agreed. Yes, that's true. Even Kettlewell is different in the book. Oh. They make him look like he should be owning a toy shop. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty obvious that the artist only had photo references for the robot, which, by the way, is rendered beautifully. That's oh, yeah. about the only thing that's good in the illustrations is that that robot is pitch perfect every time. But no one else is, including Tom Baker. It's quite terrifying most of the time, especially the disintegrator gun illustrations, because as the writer from Doctor Who's Putrid Ham points out, it makes it look like whenever he shoots somebody, it turns them into a monoptera from the web planet. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Because <laughs> what the hell is that with all the squiggly lines around them? It's awful. There is one decent illustration, though, which I, I think it's a decent illustration. It is the illustration in which the robot is on its knees, which it could never do on screen. And Sarah is bent over it in concern. And that's actually a fairly decent moment. And it's almost competent, in fact. These are mostly painfully bad. Not quite as bad as the ones in Morbius, as we'll uh, see in a minute. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. What did you think of the story? It doesn't make sense, but I'm trying to put myself in the mind of a seven-year-old who might be reading this. And things just seem to happen. And kids don't tend to nitpick as much. I mean, they're they're hypercritical on other things, like if it's boring or not exciting. I could just see them being confused because I think it's a very confused story. It's vaguely some bad guys want to do something and the robot's helping them. Yeah. But that do something and why is just very unclear. Mm -hmm. Because it's fairly complicated in the original story. And if you're trying to dumb it down, well, it's not dumbing it down. But if you're trying to make it more palatable for a younger audience, it's not going to work because it's hard to explain those concepts. And I guess this kind of goes back to my thing about like, who is a target audience? Because I would think that the kids who are watching Doctor Who and would want to read this sort of thing would probably have been okay with the novelizations. Because I was around eight years old when I started reading the regular novelizations. But I remember there had to be ones that I had seen on TV, or otherwise I got a little bit confused. And kids are pretty good at figuring out when a book is too complicated for them. You know, that's what some of the theorists and everything say. And it's, it's kind of funny because you, you guys are doing the t key to time right now on the original ones. And I remember as a kid, I love the key to time stories, but I would reread Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara over and over when I'm say like seven or eight years old because they were so simple. And I remember it wasn't until much later where I could even get through Reboss Operation because Mart or any of the Ian Martyr ones, which I now love them, but as a child, Ian Ian Martyr's prose was too difficult for me until I got to about maybe fifth, sixth grade. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I found myself going back to the more simpler, thinner Terrence Dix by numbers because when I was like third grade, fourth grade, that's about where my reading level was at. I loved the Philip Hinchcliffe's Marinus for the same reason. So like the novelizations were always kind of like aimed towards kids to begin with. And so who are these five to eight year olds who aren't able to read the regular novelizations, but are still wanting to read a whole book? Mm -hmm. That's a very niche audience right so that goes back to the joke about popular demand i mean there's <laughs> most of the kids who are really determined would have been able to read i think the originals apart from like maybe these abbreviated ones so again was there an audience probably but i think it was much smaller than they anticipated absolutely and i'll just say because i was a kid who saw it at the water books and was like i don't want this because the other one's better i mean i <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, case in point. Yeah, and they would have had a much better experience reading the original because we enjoyed the original when we did it on the show. In fact, Trey, you were part of that episode when we did the original Giant Robot novelization. I, I think I was, yes. Yeah, I was. Because looking back, and we gave it fairly high marks. This, I would not give a high mark at all. No. Mm -mm. No. 
What else do we want to say about this before moving on to Morbius? Because there's just not much to say about it. I think it is interesting how he avoids outright death, or it's it's a lot more inference. Tries to, anyway. Because we do get the guard at the beginning simply being knocked out. The robot still lies him down gently. There was also one weird thing. We do finally get the word kill in chapter four but we don't get a lot of killing until we get to the disintegrator gun right yeah right and we're also told for instance that some of the other languages dumbed down to the point that it doesn't make any sense like the robot's inability to commit crime is described as a special circuit that can be taken out (laughs) right which if anything makes it easier for the robot to kill somebody it sounds like if it's just like a usb thing that needs to be popped out For me, the worst offense is in Chapter 5. The line that says, It's great booming voice said you are an enemy of the human race. It's I-T apostrophe S. It is great booming voice said. The error that I keep having to mark on my college freshman's papers all the time, and it's here in a fucking book for (laughs) five-year-olds. So I blame Terrence. Well, actually, I don't blame Terrence Dix for it, even though he probably made the original mistake and the editor didn't catch it because I don't think anyone edited this damn thing. I believe these books were rushed to publication because as they were delayed already. And I think there was a bug in the marketing department says, hey, like, we need to get, get these out. We got to get those sales, those five to eight year old sales. We're, we got to make that up. And whoever was pulling the strings on this and, and saying what, what to do, there was probably a few skips in the uh, in the process, which makes sense because I didn't notice that particular error but there were some sentences i had to read a few times to kind of go okay maybe that's what he meant i'm not the greatest english person but i can read (laughs) that's you know as far as that goes but i wouldn't surprise me in the least that these were pushed and rushed to publication to satisfy somebody up top and then when it completely went bust i'm sure as they say in england heads will roll and get those Mm -hmm. books out of the warehouse this never happened yeah it's almost as if they were designed to fail in some way. I wonder if Terrence didn't want to, if, if he did it and said, fine, I'll do it, but don't expect my best work or I've got other projects. Or he was thinking, yeah, I got two more books. That's more money for me or whatever. We don't really know since we can't ask anybody who was there what happened. I can, I'm not only inter- interpreting the conversation I had with, with my sales agent years ago when he was telling me, we can't get these books. They've been they've been pulled. Mm-hmm. So that just leads me to believe that something other than other story happened. I don't. You know, of course, I wish we had more proof. I wish we could say definitively what happened. I'm just saying, just based on what we know, or what I know, and what we've talked about, is that someone higher up in marketing probably put this out because because the back cover reads like marketing copy. Mm-hmm. Well, shall we turn to the other one, the brain of Morbius? Good old Marius. All right, let's get the fast facts for this one out of the way. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Junior Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, adapted by Terrence Six from the script that aired from 1376 to 1276, published by Target in June of 1980. As of this recording in November of 2021, this tile is currently out of print, 80 pages. And again, there's no audiobook. Just wanted to make that clear. Dalton, could you give us a dramatic reading of the back cover of this one, please? Yeah, of course, of course. Why do spaceships crash on the remote planet of Karn? Why is the evil Solon creating a monster in his secret laboratory? Why does the witch-like sisterhood hate and fear intruders? The Doctor and Sarah must find the answers or lose their lives like the other victims of this terrifying planet. And then it has the same, due to popular demand, Terrence Dix has rewritten the Doctor Who for five to eight-year-olds. Well, I have my own questions. Why do birds suddenly appear? Why do these books exist? Yeah, why do they uh, use a blue cover on the, the paperback? Well, there's that too. I, I, I just was picturing that scene from Mommy Dearest with John Crawford holding the hanger going, Why? Hangers. Why, Christina? Why? Oh, yeah. I mean, that just should be on the back cover. Why? You know? It's... And the marketing copy didn't avoid death. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, with this one, it's almost impossible to avoid much of anything. But I have to say of the two, this one actually reads okay. But I think it may be because I read this one after that first one. So it, it just felt better because it was just a better story in some ways. But what were your takes on this one? 
he doesn't explain what an elixir is. I mean, that goes back to Larry's point about explaining things for kids, but that was one. I have a lot of high school students. If I said, oh, this is an elixir, they'd be like, what? You know, so. <laughs> What's an elixir? <laughs> Is that a computer? I mean, exactly. so again, he's doing no favors to the kids he's supposedly trying to help. I think they have novelized some of the new series episodes yes. for children in a very special educational program. And I think Terrence Sticks was part of that. Those are also for adult learners and they're done for just that reason. You're right. And the language used in those novelizations is of an age, well, not exactly an age appropriate level, a level appropriate level, if that makes sense, that it's for somebody that's just being introduced to sounding out letters and figuring out words like elixir and such. I have to say, as an educator, I am so pro novelizations mm -hmm. as a rule because they serve the same function if you're doing like reading education. Pictures, you know, they say children's books have pictures, but they serve such an important purpose of helping with word recognition. And this is an apple. Look at the apple. There's a picture of an apple. And I even wrote about this in my master's for my reading program. I was using my own experience with Doctor Who novelizations, where my vocabulary was helped tremendously because I started by pretty much reading the books that I had seen or it had VHS. And so I knew how the characters said the tone. I could see the colors. I knew what he was going for. So if it said brusque to describe a character's attitude is brusque. Um, sardonically. I remember very specific words like that that I first found out through reading them in a Doctor Who novelization and then being able to say like, remembering the sequence, it's like, oh, the character said it that way, that must be what sardonic is. So it can be a very powerful tool, but it's like maybe when they did this, they just didn't know about a novelization as a teaching tool and it is just a cash-in and it's because they started rewriting the original instead of doing a fresh, complete rewrite with children in mind. Yeah, and this one is much more based on the original novelization because if you do a cross-reference between the two you can see that Dix is leaving in almost entire passages from the original which is not necessarily a bad thing I mean if we're touting the original novelizations as a perfectly fine reading tool for young readers then that's fine in fact I would love to see how some parent would explain to their eight-year-old what a cult is yes and that <laughs> That's something that's in this book. Yes. I think it's probably not the best line to include in a book for young readers to have Sarah asking the doctor, have you gone potty? <laughs> I did, but it's okay now. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Do you think that part of the reason this one reads better and actually has things from the original is that Terrence had more time to work on it? It's, po Since yeah, this one it's possible. Since this one came out second, you know, he was at least able to try to craft it a little better than the rush job that Giant Robot was. That is... That is likely, isn't it, Dalton? Because this one, yeah, there's no denying that Giant Robot reads like a rush job. This one mm -hmm. doesn't. This reads like somebody who's gone back over their own prose and has still done some judicious chopping. We lose that oh, yeah. whole bit about the insectoid quiz at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Which is probably fine because we don't want in the first scene of a kid's book for an alien that's just come out of a crash to be killed brutally. And that's fine. But yeah, you don't really feel those gaps to the same degree as you do in no. the other book. And it's still very much broad strokes, but this one has a lot more of the atmosphere that I remember from the original story. Even though, you know, like we said, a lot of it has been chopped out. I really miss the passages about Sarah going through the wasteland blind. Yes. Like, I remember in the original Ooh. just loving that. And in right. this one, it's yeah. like, and Sarah left and was caught by Kondo and she's back at the castle now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yet he will believe in some stuff that you would not expect him to, such as the joke about the glass of water. That's still in this version. He probably felt it was too good to cut. And I agree with him. That sort of thing needs to be there the whole byplay about the doctor's head for instance we don't get anything about sarah saying she much preferred the previous version but we still get the byplay about it you're right there's some significant stuff missing from this i don't want to get to the most significant thing that's missing from it just yet we'll get there but there's something pretty big missing what else would you say stands out to you about this version just the handling of the gassing of Solon. Mm. <laughs> it does say like cyanide are these 
five to eight-year-olds are going to do this. But, I mean, that's always been one of the more ethically questionable things. I know fans have debated the doctor's actions about, did he murder Solon? Was that right and all that? Right. And right. it's handled very discreetly. So it could just been like knockout gas. Yeah. And, and the way it's written, it could definitely be interpreted that way. But he does specify that it's like cyanide. So if that's the idea, let's be responsible, Terrence, and not teach the kids about how to make cyanide. Yes, just say it was some chemicals. Just say the doctor whipped up some chemicals that would take care of him. You know, he's being vague in one area, but he's not following through in it consistently. Either tone it down or not beat around the bush. It's just, it was really weird to me that moment. Yeah. It is striking that it is still there because there are other ways he could have gone about it. And yet it is. Whereas you get the impression that if the order had been reversed and this had been the rush job, that definitely would have been one of the things to go. Not a lot has gone from this. What about the illustrations? There are some darn frightening illustrations. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the head of the Sisterhood of Karn looks like the uh, witch from Snow White. <laughs> Even holding an apple. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was the first uh-huh. thing I noticed. And, and just some of the some of them aren't shaded very well, where you can't really tell what's going on, or some of them look like they were drawn at you know hastily. Yes. Though that one in which the doctor is relighting the flame, it does have Marin looking like she's dancing at a rave for some reason. Yeah. I just don't <laughs> understand that one. Part of me wonders if initially they were done in color because there there are some variations in the shading or if they're just using grays and blacks. I really enjoy the drawing of the Doctor and Morbius during the death plot. Yeah. I think that one's pretty evocative. The drawings in this one, some of them throw back to Milton Glaser a little bit, but that kind of is what makes me think, I wonder if they would look better in color. <laughs> because they could look worse but if if you know there there is a, a wash of blue or a purple to go against the red or a warm color versus a cold color then you get the depth but when it's all put into grayscale it just becomes a big mishmash yeah and that and that's a lot of what is going on in these there some of the ones that take up the whole page aren't as bad but the ones where they really are just like a half page illustration again it's like there's too much going on yeah <laughs> i wonder if this was pitched for color illustrations and due to costs, they said, no, we can't do that. Because children's books tend to have color illustrations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the Target would not have wanted to do color illustrations since, as we've seen, the other children's books that they've done never really have them. Right. Even the photos aren't done in color for the most part, even if they come from a color production. So I'm also wondering why it is that he has such trouble giving us a drawing of Sarah that doesn't make her look like a monkey. (laughs) Yeah. It is terrifying every time, especially when she's blind. She just looks like some crackhead who's come out of an alley somewhere and is wandering around. It's kind of awful (laughs) sorry i want to read that doctor who story now yeah yeah you know doctor who and the crackheads you know (laughs) (laughs) oh give it time they will get there russell t davis is coming back after all (laughs) (laughs) oh god what else strikes you about this version nothing i mean it's I, I I kind of found it interesting myself just reading through like, okay, they never explained the Time Lords for no. starters. To, and so they, they're, they're just mentioned, but then I'm like, well, wait, there needs to be a, an introduction to, or like a prologue or something just to give you a, a little bit of a background. But he introduces that. That was one thing that caught my attention. Yeah, this is definitely a book for kids that are already familiar with the show because it just isn't going to give you any of the introductory stuff that you would need for a proper children's book on the show. In fact, the introductory stuff that you get in the actual novelizations that are meant for an older audience. Shall we talk about the big change that he makes, which is just so incredibly glaring? Please. The ending. Yes. Both of them. (laughs) Both of these books have the most truncated endings ever because Giant Robot ends right with the, uh, I hate to say it, with the shrinking of the robot and the doctor thinking, oh, maybe I can convince Sarah to come along in the TARDIS. And we get an illustration of him taking Harry and Sarah with him, but there's no mention of Harry being part of it at all. Right. Whereas here, the last time we see Marin, she's bringing the last of the elixir over to save the doctor, and then 
Suddenly, the Doctor is talking exclusively with Ohika. There's no other mention made of Marin at all. They don't cover her sacrifice. Yeah, it's gone. Right. It's absolutely gone. And that is, even though last time we talked about this book, I brought up how that sacrifice on screen is a little illogical and is done with smoke and mirrors, ironically, because otherwise you think, how did that old lady fit herself in that hole to get herself burned up like that? It just wouldn't work. But here it's not there at all. And so the emotional punch of it is gone and it leaves that whole ending feeling unsatisfying. The only thing I can think of is this trying to make things safer for kids. You don't want to send the kids the idea that you can go into the flame and it's going to be okay or it does have like a form of suicide I guess you could argue and that that's the only thing that I could think of as to why it was excluded. But it could have been gotten around by instead of having the doctor talking with Ohika, giving her lines to Marin and that would have been an easy fix. And I I very much doubt there were any five to eight-year-olds out there going, wait a minute. (laughs) But then it does change it, and the purest would maybe have that, and it would be a contradiction, whereas kind of just imagining that it's happening offstage, which is how it's written. Yeah, but how many purists like us are actually going to read these? Well, that goes back to the whole who are these books for question, which is vague. Well, they're sure as hell not for us, are they? No. Yeah, maybe Marin's just too busy being the head of, <laughs> of the cult. She doesn't have time to say her goodbyes. I've got administrative things to do, you know. Yeah, Ohika, see them out. Yeah, those damn W2s <laughs> always get backed up around this time of year. So it's like, okay, Ohika's got this. Got to delegate some authority. <laughs> it's so strange. Any Anything else you want to say about this one? I'm, I'm not sure why so many more of these survived than Giant Robot, but that seems to be <laughs> what I... And, and, I, and I usually do like a five-year analysis of, of, of what I've been searching for. There are more copies of Brain of Morbius available now than the Junior Giant Robot have been in the past yeah. five years. Is it because Giant Robot came first, everyone read it, realized the series was shit, and then like they didn't buy Brain of Morbius? I, I think the sales were so bad on both, I'm surprised the second book came out. Maybe yeah. they were trying to say, well, maybe the second one will do it. We'll we'll get the second one, or maybe that was tweaked a little bit more. Like like you said, it was a little bit a little bit better, but not by much. Yeah. But yet the whole idea was it did not please whoever was looking at the numbers and said, wow, we wasted a lot of time and money on this. Let's cut our losses and get back to what we do best. Well, I remember when I first heard of these i had first heard of them because they were listed on the back of some of the other books it's like books that you could buy when they have the list at the end because it was also the time where you had like flintstone kids and there was this thing where you take junior everything you turn the scooby-doo gang into kids you know muppet babies that sort of thing and so at first i thought maybe it was almost like they did with those james bond jr books where they kind of remade Goldfinger or something. I thought it was like going to be a completely original story that was like about the Doctor as a kid. Right. Young Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Great, Dalton. That's a great example yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of like that idea better than what we actually got. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, th- I think another factor, too, just looking at the price of the hardbacks. Back in 1980, these were £2.50, which oh. in today's pounds would be 10 point one seven or so and in dollars that's almost twenty dollars so for a children's book it was very expensive a part of it too is it surprised me that they priced them so high or that they even put out a hardcover edition that made no sense to me from that but to uh, and some people i've talked to you know i do these sessions on collecting there they made hardcovers of those i'm like yeah they're on the wh allen imprint uh not the longbow imprint which would have been the children's imprint but they get by in the title page by saying a children's book by W.H. Allen, which they didn't do for any other children's series. Yeah. Ah, oh, well, shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> let's go. I think we should. <laughs> yes, as we always do. Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers. Then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads discussion group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for these books on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.48 for Giant Robot and 3.45 for Brain. Wow. 
for some reason, Giant Robot is considered better than Brain of Morbius on Goodreads, which just shows how weird that site is, and you'll see why when we get to the reviews. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our group, Dave Davis reviews both books together without assigning a number of stars to either one, and says, I consider myself very lucky to have been born into a family surrounded by books and to have been surrounded by people for whom reading for pleasure was normal. Not everyone is so fortunate. One friend of mine was actively discouraged from reading anything other than textbooks and technical manuals. Well, he read the Doctor Who technical manual though, right, Dave? So that had to have been fun. Even with my advantage in reading books written for adults from the age of seven or eight, I had the occasional hurdle to overcome. It took me a while to start Doctor Who and the Daleks because the thought was so small and the text so dense. I had the same problem with Crusaders, in fact. That wasn't the case with either of the novelizations the junior Doctor Who books were based on, but a full book might be daunting for a child, or an adult for that matter, not accustomed to reading. Dix doesn't make a lot of changes. There are a few, such as Small Hospital instead of Sick Bay and Giant Robot, but for the most part, these books are simply abridged versions, and much thinner than the originals. I can easily imagine the sense of accomplishment a child might feel on finishing one of these books, which could easily encourage them to try a longer tome, which is presumably the reason these books were published in the first place. Well, while I wouldn't have read them, being much older than the intended target, <laughs> no pun intended there, I'm sure, I think it's a shame the range was continued. Charlotte, on Goodreads, gave Giant Robot five stars. And, Good Charlotte. Yes, and says, really like this book was a different take on the Giant Robots of sci-fi. Well, yes, it was a different take on the Giant Robots of sci-fi, was it not? There's also a review of the book in Japanese, of all things, but it's mostly plot summary, except for the interesting line, the doctor is tired of Sullivan, the doctor in charge of diagnosing himself as mentally ill, and tries to run away in the TARDIS, but Sarah pulls him back in a hurry. I don't know why, it's just that line that Sullivan is in charge of diagnosing the doctor as mentally ill. That's what they got from it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, I'm right. going to screw up this person's name, because I do not know how to pronounce this. Jeff... Spurglass gives Brain of Morbius three stars and says, I've had this for years. I bought it back when coming across anything bearing the Doctor Who logo was a find akin to unearthing the Titanic, how times have changed. <laughs> it sat on my shelf for years, and now that I have two infant children, it's being used as a read aloud, more for my benefit than theirs. I'm going to have to break out the actual target novelization at some point and see which is better. Uh, spoiler alert, Jeff, it's not this one. <laughs> yes. And finally, Nicole gives Brain of Morbius four stars and says, Written for five to eight-year-olds, Junior Doctor and the Brain of Morbius is true to the series and maintains the suspense and horrors of the original. Taron Stix was a BBC writer and wrote several of the Doctor Who episodes, including Brain of Morbius. Having said that, I did find it a little childish, but my four-year-old loves it. You gave this to a four-year-old, Nicole? Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, dear. Someone should call Child Protective Services on this woman. Four-year-old? Oh, God. I think anyway, sell the book and collect the rewards. <laughs> yeah, start a college fund for your four-year-old. Yes. I suppose so. So we're going to do these books one at a time again, and I'll give you the original ratings we gave them when we first read them, the originals, and then we'll ask our panelists for the ratings of this version, and then we'll move to the next one. Our original ratings for The Giant Robot were 3.5 for myself and for Dalton, and Trey, you gave it a Three. So, Trey, what would you give this version of the giant robot? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so here's my reasoning. Obviously, I like the story. I mean, I like the story on TV. I like the novelization. But, you know, I always kind of evaluate this as how are they working as a novelization? And I think this doesn't take into account to help the readers is purportedly written for. And so I think it just spectacularly fails on all counts. You know, it's too condensed to be an interesting story that makes sense. Children's books can sometimes get by with the charm of their illustrations. Well, that's not happening. It's such a pointless exercise. And I think maybe there's an, a good idea behind it. 
but the way to go about doing it was not how it was executed. And I, I just have a hard time imagining anyone can benefit from it. So I, I just think it's a spectacular failure. So zero. All right. Uh, Larry. I was a little more generous. I gave it a 2.0. Giant Robot, I think of all the Tom Baker stories, I've seen that one the most because growing up in Chicago in the late 70s, early 80s, they always started way back at Giant Robot. Like, they did a continuous loop for months, and it was just a... It's a great story. The Sadly, though, it was just mistreated in this version, and it's a shame that they didn't hire a children's author as opposed to Terrence himself, who's not a children's author, to maybe adapt the book a little bit. If they really want a giant robot to be a children's book, they really could have done it well, but they chose to rush it to publication, and, and this is the result. Agreed. All right. Uh, Dalton? I would probably give this 1 or 1.5. Like we said before, it feels very much like an abridged version of the novelizations that we already have. And I, I agree with Larry. If this would have been written by an actual children's author, it could be something magical. It could be something really appealing and nice for a kid to have. As it is, it is in this weird kind of in-between space of being an adult novelization and a kid's novelization. A lot of the subject matter is way above kids' heads, uh, and they're just going to come out of this having questions and maybe being a little afraid. So, yeah, I would say 1.5. And as for me, I'd also give it a 1 because there are so many ways you could have adapted even a story like Giant Robot, as complicated as it is for a kid's audience, and made it palatable. But instead, some of the stuff, and I think this goes back to exactly what you were saying, that they could have had a children's author come in and prune it of things such as Sarah's oblique reference to women's angle stories. It's like, what five-year-old is going to understand what a fucking women's angle story is? <laughs> and yet that's left in there. And yet the stuff that they really need, the context that is missing that Trey was talking about, the interactions between Sarah and the robot have been pruned down as well, so that that whole business of he saves her because he feels she's the only one worth saving barely registers on the page. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this would be a one. Okay, for Brain of Morbius, we originally, I believe Dalton and I both gave that 4.25, and Jenny was on that episode, and she gave it a 4.5. So, Trey, what would you give the junior Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius? Zero. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for, for the exact same reasons as before. And mind you, I, I love the novel of Brain of Morbius. I would probably give that like a 3.5 or a 4 because I think it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I really, really like the story. But I'm just thinking about how this is trying to accomplish its task of reaching young readers. And I think it's a failure. So, zero. <laughs> Just that time of the semester, isn't it, Trey? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and Larry? Yeah, I, I give it the same rating of a two, only because I, I love the story of the brain of Morbius. And uh, again, I'm, I'm still, my brain is befuddled by the fact that you can get these books now, but you can't get Giant Robot. So I, I'm not sure what happened there. It's still something that comes up, you know, when people ask me, hey, can you get a hold of these junior books? I'm like, well, I have a set. I don't know if I can point you in the right direction, but I can tell you right now there's a seller on Abe's Books that's got two copies of Brain of Morbius on hardcover. They're asking $250 each. So that's about it. Junior Giant Robot, good luck. I haven't seen it in a long time. And uh, if someone does have one and finally realizes what they have, they could command a really good price for it. Just, uh, It's a shame, though, that, like I said, and, and what Trey said earlier about this whole thing, if they had gotten the right people, at, you know, instead of pushing this, I, and I honestly believe, just from what we've talked about, I'm just extrapolating that they probably pushed this through without getting a proper children's author or even sending it to their children's division, which would have been outside of the Doctor Who area of, of Wind of Books. But it sounds like it was it was something to do with money, uh, which is the root of all these things anyway, in publishing. And when they found out it wasn't doing well, it was actually costing them money, they cut their losses fast and decided we're not even going to, you know, and didn't even keep copies to distribute later, to even try to recoup costs from it. They decided to, you know, do the scorched earth policy on it. Mm -hmm. All right, and Dalton? I'm going to agree with Larry on this one. I will give this a two- I think that of the two books, 
it was the stronger one. I think that Tyrion Sticks probably had a little more time to put some care into it. And as you noted, Tony, there are direct passages that are pulled from the other novelization. So this one does feel a, a little closer to the story. I think tonally it is in a better place. It still has had you know a hacksaw taken to it taking out a lot of the good passages from the original novelization but again something that i feel like i would have really enjoyed as a kid given that it's a little spooky but not too spooky dealing with the monsters and most of the story taking place at night all kids hate the dark so yeah i i think this one is is a fun story for kids but it's not written very well Okay. And as for me, yeah, I'd agree with Dalton that this is a two. It's certainly not as good as the original because we loved the original. It is still better than the other one. It is at least a semi-enjoyable read and part of the fun, if there is any fun to be had here, is trying to figure out what's missing. And surprisingly, there's not a lot that's missing in the same way as, say, that cut-down BBC video version of Brain Morbius, which does feel truncated. The only part of this that sounds truncated at all is the very end. And that's only for purists. That's only for those of us that know the story. But yeah, these aren't Goosebumps books. These are not the same sort of children's books that are produced so well by the time you get into the 80s and 90s, especially by Scholastic. If Scholastic had gotten hold of the Doctor Who property, I think they probably would have come out with some really decent original Doctor Who stories that kids of that age range could have enjoyed, but that just wasn't going to happen in the late 70s, and whether it was Terrence Dix wanting the money, or whether it was Target wanting the money, somebody wanted the money, but they didn't want to spend the money to make it a good product, and so now we have these things that people can make a lot of money off of, but talk about making a silk purse out of a sow's ear, Jesus God. (laughs) Anyway, thank you all. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we get back to the key to time season, already in progress, with our look at Taron Stick's novelization of Robert Holmes' script for The Power of Kroll, which luckily they did not edit into a junior Doctor Who either. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you and it will fail you, just like these books have failed us, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.